How do you answer God for life as you've experienced it? It's a, a book by Eugene Peterson on the Psalms. Um, it's probably my second favorite book on the Psalms. Because we have this horrible, horrible instinct. And the instinct is to be far more polite when addressing God than the scriptures. You know what I'm saying? Have you ever gotten real visceral with God and then you feel nervous? Like it's just you praying. But you're honest about life as you actually experience it and then you're nervous. Like, was I supposed to pray that way? We get more religious than Christianity. We get more polite than the scriptures talk to us about and we miss this beautiful sometimes ugly opportunity to answer God for life as we actually experience it. Some of you are close to your plan A life, but I don't think very many of you. Some of you are on plan J or R. And I wonder if you talk to God about plan C and E and I, and I wonder if you talk to him honestly. I did yesterday, and it was uncomfortable, right? It's uncomfortable to talk to God the way that the psalmists do. But that's the level of relationship purchased for us. You okay, Kathy? You see, our whole... Uh, what we're hoping for this morning as we engage in and do the work of corporate worship together, we hope that our faith will grow up. We hope that with our hands we worship. We hope that our lips and our minds and our hearts are grown up into greater and greater maturity. And one of the components of that is how we pray. And there are a lot of good teachings on prayer. The, Jesus taught on prayer more than once. There are prayers modeled and taught in the scriptures. Both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter talk about casting our anxieties upon the Lord. But the longest book in your Bible is a mentor and a friend to you in learning to pray to God. And that is not what I think is so interesting about the Psalms. If we actually go to the Psalms and treat them as mentor and friend and even prayers that we can use directly. We're brought into full honesty about life as we actually experience it. The seasons and the emotion and the sharp disorientation of mystery with physical illness, the long seasons of disorientation with friends that we're struggling with or they're struggling with us. The most common form of psalm is one of disorientation. If you read a study Bible, it'll call Psalm 141 an individual lament, and that's true. And I wonder if that's language that makes sense to you, and if you recognize in it your own story, because you've gone through seasons of disorientation. Maybe you've been in one for years, and you're sick of it. And you think that that separates you from intimacy with the Father. And the Psalms remind us not only that it does not, but that it is an act of faith to answer him about life as we actually experience it. 
one of the things that challenges me about the Psalms is that they're repetitive. When you go to Thanksgiving dinner with your family, how many of you are going to hear a story that you've heard before? Nine? Really? I thought more of you. Maybe your families are more evolved than mine. And maybe you have the emotional maturity to recognize that when someone repeats a story, while that may be annoying, it's also a very important story to them. And this is where sometimes a pastor will say, like, it's a poetic device. It's re repetition is a poetic device. And that's true. Excuse me. And that's true, that it is a poetic device to repeat something. It's also a move of relational intimacy. Have you cried out to God about something and you wonder if he heard you? Or you cried out to him and so you feel like you're not supposed to do it again. You're supposed to complain once about the illness or about the situation that seems unresolved or the injustice that you see, either from a distance or up close. And the Psalms lead us to repeat ourselves because that's what we do in relationships of intimacy. On a good day, we might remember that they know the story and we, we say there's some other things about that I need you to tell, but more often than not, we repeat a story and we don't realize that we've done it. And it gets real tricky for me because I end up trying to give you new words every week for about 25 minutes. Then we have a regular conversation. I start to tell you a story and like, you said that like three months ago in a sermon and I'm amazed that you remember that. And it's like, I have no more stories. And I am. I don't know what it's like to listen to me for the number of weeks and months that many of you have listened to me. I do listen to my sermons later to see if they're clear, and usually I'm like, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> and I want to point something out, too. We, we are, this is a Presbyterian church. That means we follow a heritage of theology that, that highlights, because it's in Scripture a lot, that God knows everything that he's fully in control, that he knew you yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And sometimes when people that don't view the scripture that way are talking with someone who does, they say, if God knows everything, why would you pray? And perhaps especially, why would you pray like this? Here's my first response. If God knows everything, why wouldn't you pray? Because it's relational. And what challenges us intellectually is your prayers still have causality. That's what Pascal calls it. One of our prayer teachers here, Bob Japanka, has mentioned that before, and he's right. Your prayers matter, and God knows everything. And the Psalms invite us to live in that mystery by first and foremost highlighting the relational intimacy that God offers to us. And most of us don't take him up on it. Most of us pray very politely. Most of us are not even comfortable admitting in our heads that we have enemies at work. People that are not for you. The psalm we're going to look at in just a moment, verses 3, 4, and 5, are a spectacular expansion of how to pray about temptation at work, including whether or not you should eat the cupcakes that the person at work brought in. And you're nervous that if you eat the cupcakes, I'm serious. You're nervous if I eat the cupcakes, will they think like I'm with them? Because the Psalms are not only theological, they're, and they're not only emotional, they're also mundane. And when we learn to let them pray us, which I'll talk about more in a little bit, we find our regular stories in life. If you work at a company larger than one person, 
there have been political moments, right? Well, what do you do as a follower of Jesus about that? Among other things, you learn to pray in light of those political developments that you would handle them wisely. Sometimes entering them, sometimes not entering them. And this is all about trust, because in healthy relationships, there is trust. And you are not crazy with respect to trust. I'm not sure about generally, but with respect to trust, it's been broken. Maybe between you and God. He has broken nothing and not changed, but you live in a very broken world that is in the presence of sin and death. It's not weird that you have trouble trusting him and praying the way that the psalmist does in Psalm 141. That's why I get uncomfortable praying that way. I did it yesterday. It made me uncomfortable. Why? Because trust is not easily had. But in healthy relationships, we're honest. And trust is not easy, and it's really not easy to maintain. People have told you one thing and done another. People have told you they'd come through for you and they didn't. You have cried out to God and you have heard nothing in the way that you were hoping to hear it. He seemed silent. It's legit. What happens is our fear causes us to hesitate, right? If we pray like a psalmist, some of us will feel ashamed. Like, I feel ungrateful. There's so many people that have it worse off than me. I shouldn't complain like this to God. Not only should you, it's a wonderful part of the with God life to relate to him exactly as we experience life. Whoever wrote Psalm 88 was clinically depressed, and they poured out their clinical depression to God knowing that he would take it seriously. Whoever wrote Psalm 137 was very enraged, I think justifiably so, and they poured out that rage to God knowing that he would take it seriously. Whoever wrote Psalm 30 that, that was, we, we sang a little bit of this morning was ill. They were sick for a long time and that caused them great disorientation and unsettledness. Some of you have sicknesses that are invisible to other people and I want us to get better at talking to God about that. Some of us, anger really causes us to hesitate with respect to honesty in prayer. We wonder if God cares. We see injustice, and we've been praying against injustice for 11 years or 31 years, and we continue to wonder, does he care? And in our anger, we miss the opportunity to be honest with him, sometimes repetitively so. about the world. Some of us, it's shame. It's hard to say out loud the things that have actually happened to us and the rough seasons that we've gone through. And so we hesitate. And in our hesitation, we're missing the wonderful mentoring of the Psalms. In my notes, it said to read the Psalm much earlier than this. If you have your Bible, we're looking at Psalm 141. Because 
if you follow uh, some monastic traditions that say the day of the month that it is, take that psalm and read it and pray it and let it pray you and then add 30, 30, 30, 30. You'll end up reading the whole Psalter in the course of a month. You'll end up experiencing all of the emotions that humans experience. You'll end up sensing a lot of the seasons of life that humans sense, especially when you separate it that way. And if you did that this morning, the last psalm that you came across was Psalm 141. O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to any evil to busy myself with wicked deeds in company with men who work iniquity and let me not eat of their delicacies. That's the cupcakes. <laughs> let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. When their judges are thrown over the cliff, then they shall hear my words, for they are pleasant. If that jumps out at you, I'm glad you're paying attention. We'll come back to that. As when one plows and breaks up the earth, so shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol. But my eyes are toward you, O God, my Lord. In you I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. Keep me from the trap that they have laid for me and from the snares of evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. So in healthy relationships, we're honest. And in that honesty, we then cry out to God to help us with our mouth and with our lips and with our heart and with whether or not we should eat dessert in the break room at this place of business. And that's brought up because, again, it, it, for those of us that, well, I'm in charge. This is awkward for my staff, I guess. But at a place of business, there's stuff going on relationally and we're not positive what it is and we're nervous and this is mentoring us in how to talk to God about that and in talking to God about that and in realizing that our spirituality is every bit as mundane as every moment of our life. There are not mundane and spiritual moments. You are an entire being, your head and your heart and your body and your mind and your hands and your words. They're not disconnected things. And your work is important. And navigating that with wisdom is challenging, which is why... David writes this here. And we're honest. And in that honesty, and this, this came up two weeks ago in the Psalms because it comes up a lot. There are a number of things that come up a lot because the psalmists are repetitive about what they see in the world that troubles them. One of them is a lack of justice. That's what's happening in verse 6. When their judges are thrown over the cliff, then they shall hear my words, for they are pleasant. Are you following that analogy? So David is saying that there are these evil judges and they have some kind of power in his life. And after they're thrown over the cliff, but before they hit the bottom, they're going to realize he was right. <laughs> now, did God do that? No. Did David feel that way and long to see justice in that way? Yes. Is that justice? I don't... I, that makes me nervous. But I love that he prayed that way. You have been in unjust situations and there might be resolution in the future and there might not and you have felt similarly to this. How do we pray in light of that? Like this. You're like, I could never 
pray this way. That's that instinct I was telling you about, to be more spiritual than the scriptures. And the goal is, of course, the sanctification where we love enemy. But how do we get there? The Psalms teach us that one of the bridges to loving enemy is to be honest with God about how we experience the world. Sometimes in healthy relationships, we exaggerate, right? And I don't mean telling a story with a little bit of spin. I mean being honest about how we feel. I can remember saying before that it felt like it was hard to breathe. Was it actually hard to breathe? No. Did it feel like it was hard to breathe? That's the kind of exaggeration I'm talking about. Who do you do that with? You do it with your friends because you want them to know how you actually feel as you're talking about a specific situation. We are supposed to do that with the Lord also. That's the level of relationship we're called into, where we exaggerate. I don't know how much you know about King David. We know more about King David than any other character in the scriptures. Some of you probably like him, some of you probably don't. You probably don't know much about him. I know this. He was never defenseless, not once. Even in really rough moments where the, the deck was stacked against him, he was never defenseless. He was a scrappy fellow. That's almost a quotation of 1 Samuel 16. It's not just me riffing on the text. It says he was ruddy. He was never defenseless, and yet in Psalm 141, he says he's defenseless. Why? He's exaggerating his case before God because he knows the intimacy of the Father heart of God towards him, and he expresses it back. And something's happening, and we don't know what it is. And I don't think it's as important to study what was actually happening in his life as it is to notice the prayer about it. But if you work at a company with more than a couple of people in it, or even perhaps with a couple of people in it, there have been times that you know something's going on that you don't fully know about, right? You know that people are either talking about you or they're not, and they should be, in a good way, right? Because you're amazing at your job. And you wonder what to do about that and how to engage it, and how to think about it. Listen again to verses 3, 4, and 5 as an expansion of Jesus' teaching on temptation. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds in company with men who work iniquity, and let me not eat of their delicacies. Let a righteous man strike me as a kindness. Let him rebuke me at his oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. And the reason I include that is not only is David leaning into the relational intimacy with the Father, he's also knowing that friendship plays a role in this. If all of us learn to pray as intimately as the psalmist, we still have life to do. And one of the provisions, I love that this is just in the middle of the psalm, one of the provisions we have for that is friendship. And I hope that you have friends that shoot you straight. I have, I, I hope that you have friends that shoot you so straight when they rebuke you, you actually know it's a kindness. I have a handful. And thanks to our Presbyterian system, I have nine people that you appointed to do that with me. <laughs> They're called your elders. And sometimes when they rebuke me, I receive it as a kindness because I know they care about Jesus and about you and about me. And sometimes I don't. And I come back to the psalm and I'm like, right. This is what we do in friendship and in leadership. I hope that you have a friend like that.
In healthy relationships, both with the Lord and with others, we're honest, we sometimes exaggerate, and it's as we seek refuge. That's actually why that's such a beautiful picture of friendship. That friend that can push back on you and you receive it as love, you also know they're there for you. You know they are for you. My previous job, there was a season where some of the elders, uh, this was when I was doing youth ministry, not a pastor there yet, there were a couple of elders that were actually not for any of us on staff, but they started with me. Um, we didn't know that they were against us. And one of my, um, the associate pastor, defended me. First, he didn't. That was challenging. Then he did. And then later, when he would correct me, he was like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, man. <laughs> you saved my job. Like, I know you love me. Say whatever you need to say. I hope that you have that friendship in real life. But more importantly, I hope that you learn to pray the way that the psalmist does in light of how they actually experience life, knowing that God is a refuge, knowing that expressing the full range of your emotion and your circumstances, regardless of perspective. I think perspective is a poor judge of how much something affected you. Yes, if it happened in Syria, it would have been worse, but I'll bet it was still a big deal whatever it is that you're thinking of and wondering if it was a big deal in your life. It was so disorienting. I, that's a tangent. I'm going to reel it back in, but I'm not at all sure that perspective is a good way to determine whether something was disorienting or painful. A friend of mine who lives in St. Louis listened to my sermon from two weeks ago, and he's known me for decades. And he's like, what does it mean when you say, let the Psalms pray us? And I was like, oh, no. A friend of 20 years didn't know what I meant. How are these people, some of whom just met me, going to know what I mean by that? So I'm going to attempt to unpack it a little bit. Um, some of us are not familiar with reading the Bible. I hope that you give it a shot, and especially hope that you open to the psalm that is the, that day of the month and you read it. But our instincts, perhaps especially as Western people, mentored, uh, you know, Greekly and, and such, we think we're supposed to learn something every time we read something. And, and that's, that's okay in and of itself. But the Psalms are not built for that. The Psalms are built to become our mentors in prayer and actually to pray us. So what I mean is you could read Psalm 21 and then you read it a second time and it's a prayer. And hopefully you find yourself in it emotionally and, seasons of li- and season of lifely find yourself in it. And then perhaps you read it again, and you are actually being prayed by Psalm 21. You're not trying to learn, though if God wants to teach you something, that's you and he. You are engaging the intimacy God has always had in place for his people. That's what I mean by letting the Psalms pray us. Perhaps especially in the seasons where we don't have any new words in prayer. They're such a gift. I hope that you know how to use them as such. And yet, that's not the good news. The good news is not that you can be mentored by the Psalms. The good news is not that you can let the Psalms pray you, though I find that practice by far the most helpful of any practice of the with God life individually. Corporate worship is more important. The sacrament is more important. But in my devotional life, the Psalms are... miles and miles ahead of any other resource for devotional life. But that's not the good news. The good news is that 
we get to pray that way and relate to God that way because of Jesus. Because he incarnated. He was not created. He incarnated, became a man. He lived a sinless life that we long to live on our good days and know, hopefully on all of our days, that we can't live. He taught us about the Father heart of God and about what he was about to do, which is the atonement. He took on all the wrath of God because we cannot. And so in a trusting relationship with him, this kind of intimacy is purchased for us. And we enjoy it. We learn to ignore the lies of shame and anger and fear as we approach God this intimately because of Jesus. That's the good news. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we praise you for your fatherly delight and pursuit and care. We ask for help as we approach you with our mixtures of circumstances in life and emotions. We praise and thank you for giving us the Psalms to teach us and to remind us and to mentor us and to pray us into the intimacy we actually have in a relationship with you. Jesus, we praise you for taking the wrath of God on yourself. We thank you that you love us and like us and call us your own as we have sang about and prayed about this morning. We ask for help in navigating our lives as David talked about in the psalm. Father, bless us this morning and on Monday and Wednesday and Friday and Saturday with a sense of you that you are indeed our everlasting God. And because of the work of Christ, you are ours and we are yours forever. Amen.